And really, you have all week to fellowship together, just so you know. Um, so I'd encourage you to do so. So open up if you have your Bibles, or maybe you have it on your technology, to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in a couple verses in chapter 5. And as we near the end of Paul's letter here to this young church, he offers us what may be labeled in your Bible as his final instructions. And he, he does this in another letter or two. He, he kind of moves from instructions with kind of some more expounded thought to hear some final encouragements that kind of come at us in, a, in rapid fire, if you will. But they all apply to community life within the church. So over, over our next four weeks uh, before Palm Sunday and Easter, which are coming up in, later in April, uh, we'll be slowing down a bit and taking these sections and kind of smaller bites. And, and uh, Daniel Lee, in a couple weeks, will be sharing a couple of these verses as well. Um, these, these words, these final instructions flow from um, Paul's repeated encouragement that the church community is to be a place of mutual encouragement and is to reflect what it is to be God's children, children of light and of the day. He spoke of that earlier in his letter. As we look back in, in chapter 4, children of the light and of the day. Those, those children that are saved by Jesus, saved from their sin because of what he's done on the cross as they turn to him in repentance and faith, saved out of the night, saved out of the darkness and the consequences of our sin. So what does it look like to live as children of the light and children of the day? Um, the first of Paul's final instructions will just be really reading two verses here, verses 12 and 13, concern the relationship between the church and church leadership. It's always a little interesting as a pastor doing, uh, I'm just being honest, doing messages on church leadership. I almost in some ways have to be personal about it, but disconnect and just teach the truth of God's word. So I don't, I don't want you in any way to think, boy, this is a really convenient thing that Randy's doing, encouraging us how we are to respond to church leadership. And also in that, realize that at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel, I only represent one part of the leadership here at the church as we are governed by a team of elders. Um, so again, I'll, I'll look to teach this in spirit and in truth, Lord willing, um, according to God's word and unashamedly in the principles of God's word. Um, so we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. Paul just simply says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. We're just going to look at those two verses. 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Um, with obvious intention, Paul continues to uh, address his audience within the framework of a new spiritual family. We've mentioned that before. He does this over and over and over again, this letter. He says, brothers, 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 now brothers. In the Greek, just so you know, ladies, in the Greek, this word actually would be encompassing of both genders. So we could say brothers and sisters. Um, but he's always kind of framing this out in the context of this new spiritual family. So within the spiritual family, what are some of the responsibilities of and what is a healthy response to church leadership? Um, this leadership would have been recognized as a, we can assume, as, as a team of spiritual elders, also called overseers um, in the scripture. And the reason we can assume that is because that was, the, that was the pattern of church governance in all of the churches in the New Testament. And uh, Paul said to, Timothy, uh, to Titus in Titus 1.5, um, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So this, again, is what we see happen over and over again as Paul establishes churches, um, even in these cultures that were mixed between where people were coming to Jesus, whether they be Jew or Gentile, he's establishing these diverse churches and their governance, their oversight was always with a team of elders. Now, as you look at those verses, verses 12 and 13, I'm going I'm to ask you to imagine for a second and, and, and just to think a little bit um, what might we be able to assume was the catalyst for this instruction? What might have been going on within the body that Paul felt like he needed to say these things? Even in general. Grumbling about the leadership? Okay. That didn't happen then. Doesn't happen now, right? I'm glad we're so much more mature. And it, what else? What, what might have been going on? Again, it, it takes a little imagination. We've only got a few words here. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. All right, so how are we connecting that with church leadership? Okay. Right, right. So, so what, what a lot of, again, this, this takes a little bit of conjecture, a little bit of guesswork. Um, but when you piece some things together, there were some in the body. Now, it doesn't seem like all of them were doing this, but there were some in the body that we talked about this a few weeks ago. 
that were idle among them. Paul, in the second letter, has even stronger words um, towards this group. So it very may well have been that there was some tension um, between the, some of the leaders of the church and some of those that they have challenged. And maybe they had challenged those very people that were um, being idle. Um, and, and that challenge may have gone... Uh, may have gone to the point where it was just like, you know, thanks but no thanks, you know. <laughs> so it may, have been, it may have been disregarded, not well received, maybe even dismissed altogether. Hey, yeah, okay, thanks for letting me know, Mr. Elder. Mind your own business, I'll do my thing. Um, so, so that's probably the sort of context that Paul is writing into. Another interesting dynamic, um, and it, it was just interesting even for me to think of that this, this, this week. One of the commentators pointed this out. One, another interesting dynamic considering um, kind of the struggle of church leadership in the first century um, is that in the Greco-Roman culture, now I say this, and this is what's always great. We say this, in the Greco-Roman culture, this was true, what I'm about to say, but it's also still true very much in our culture. And what that was is that the dynamic was is that in their society, many people that were recognized as leaders were already people that had a lot of what? Money? Power? Connections? Right? Those were the people that were recognized in their society automatically as those who would be leaders. People who had money, people who had the right connections, people who had power. Of course, they would be the leaders, right? Now, the, the, the catch is, is that in the church, it's supposed to be different, okay? It's supposed to be different. Uh, church leadership shouldn't be determined uh, by what family I happen to come out of or how much money I happen to have or how much power or influence I might have in society, um, church leadership should be determined rather on spiritual giftedness and spiritual maturity, that there would be a, a mature and humble temperament before the Lord. So if you can imagine for a minute, again, this may have meant quite a role reversal for, for many who came to the Lord. So where someone may have had no opportunity out in society to be a leader, they might find opportunity within the church and vice versa, where some were used to being leaders in business and politics because they came from the right family and the right money, might come into the church and find themselves not as leaders. So think of it this way, in our context. You have maybe someone in your church that is a good-looking, charismatic uh, CEO of some company. They're influential. They have a lot of money. Um, everybody knows them. And the, the, uh, it, it's really easy to kind of say, well, a person like that automatically seems to have some say because they have some say in all other aspects of their life and in, in the community. But is that true? Should someone like that, just because they're charismatic, just because they are um, good-looking, just because they have money or come from the right family, 
or have a certain amount of influence and power, do they automatically have more say in the church? And Scripture would say, no, especially if they are not spiritually mature. Now, say on the other hand, you have, you have a, um, uh, a middle-aged, a little less attractive um, fellow that is a janitor at the local school, doesn't have a college education, but has been diligent as a, as a disciple in God's word, loves the Lord, and it, and it becomes more and more obvious through the years that, that this person is a gifted spiritual shepherd. Now, would you neglect to recognize that person as a spiritual leader, regardless of a lack of worldly credentials? And then imagine if you did recognize that person as a spiritual leader, as an elder, and then you have the CEO in the body. How does the CEO relate then to the janitor as an elder above him? So some interesting dynamics uh, for them for them in their day, and even still for us in ours. Uh, the church kind of turns on its ear how leaders are recognized. Uh, Francis Chan told a story in his book, Letters to the Church, of a conversation he had a, with a pastor in India. And apparently this pastor had a tremendous, has a tremendous work in India. He said, he didn't note who this person was, but he said that he, his ministry was responsible for like millions of people coming to Christ. Um, and he said to this guy, he, Chan asked him about the leadership strategy it takes to have people discipled in that setting. What kind of people are you getting to lead and disciple that kind of ministry? What's your strategy? I love this. Uh, the, the pastor responded, this Indian pastor responded. He said, Americans always want to know about strategy. Americans always want to know about strategy. This is what I'll tell you. Now listen to this. This is what I'll tell you. My leaders are the most humble men I know. And they know Jesus deeply. What are their credentials? Are they wealthy? Are they powerful? Do they have a name? Do they have plaques on the wall? No. They're the most humble men I know and they know Jesus deeply. Is that our criteria for leadership in the church? So what, what do these few words tell us about what's biblically expected of a church leader? Now, certainly we don't have kind of an exhaustive overview of church leadership, but we are clued into a few things. Um, I, had a, I remember when I was, about, I was about 15 years old, so this is about six years ago, I uh, do the math, Bruce. It wasn't so. Um, I was about 15 years old. I went to a pastor, uh, a pastor friend of mine, in New Jersey. His name is Jack Hurley. He's he's been with the Lord for many many years now. Um, and I asked Jack, and I I, I I wanted to talk to him about the fact that I felt like even at that time. Um, the Lord had on my heart that he was calling me to the ministry of, of being a pastor. Now, if you know my story, that was a, a, an interesting road that the Lord actually brought me here. Um, but at that time, I was quite sure that the Lord was calling me to that. So I expected his, his kind of enthusiastic approval. I expected his enthusiastic encouragement. You know, hey, Jack, you're a pastor. I feel like God is calling me to be a pastor. Um, 
what, what say you? And this is what he told me. I'll never forget this. This is what he told me. Randy, consider every other option first. <laughs> and I'm like, what? 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 Consider every other option first. And he was serious. I mean, straight-faced. Here's my counsel. Consider every other option first. I remember sitting at my, my parents' kitchen table with him, and I'm like, that's not what I expected. You know, is that supposed to be encouraging to me? And then he said, then if you still burn with passion to get into the ministry, follow it. Follow, follow what the Lord is calling you to. But it's really interesting. Consider every other option first. Why do you think he counseled me that way? Hmm? Just because he knew me? Is that what you were thinking? Why do you think he counseled me that way? Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. 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 That's good. You guys are giving me more insights than I even knew. That's. Yeah, I'll never, I think I've told this story before, too. I'll never forget, too. As a teenager, I went to a pastor's conference at what was Community Bible Fellowship. It was a church that uh, Rod Conover was part of, if you know that name. Um, it's, now, it's now actually um, Shore Vineyard, I believe. Uh, and I remember being at this conference in the 80s, and pastor after pastor got up there, and they were sharing, and they were all, like, breaking down and crying. And I'm like, what on earth? What's wrong with these people? And, and I just realized at that time that there's something about this work that is different um, than a lot of other works. And, and again, I'm not trying to put it to this place where it's like, ah, up here, but it's just different. Um, and, and I didn't totally understand it at the time. But the reality is, and I think we hear this in Paul's words here, you know, there, there certainly are lazy church leaders. There are plenty of lazy church leaders. Um, but what Paul assumes is that when someone applies themselves to the task, it's going to be hard work. If someone really applies themselves to the task, it's going to be hard work. Um, and that's not just for pastors. Again, this is for all church leadership. Uh, church leadership kind of has its share of unique burdens, um, leaders, leaders sometimes, you could say they, it's fair to say leaders sometimes have a target on their back. Um, that's very true, I think, when you think about the spiritual warfare dynamic of things. Um, I think it's also sometimes sadly true, even of those, uh, some of the people that they lead, although not always. Um, leaders are called to enter into some of the most trying and, and difficult places in people's lives. Uh, they, they, enter into, um, they enter into people places where people are struggling with sin, um, tr- struggling with hardship, hard questions, uh, sometimes people that are mourning, mourning death. 
So it, it's, you enter into some really, really difficult places. Um, you're, uh, you're called sometimes to confidentially be in the know of some of the, the darkest corners of people's lives. Um, sometimes you have an in and out aspect as a leader where you're, you're, you're so deeply entered into someone's life and then they're out of your life and then you kind of have to deal with the, the emotions of that. With that said, there's also a lot of beauty with church leadership. You, 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 you also get at times kind of a front row seat of what God is doing in people's lives and you're seeing the deep transformation of someone who submits themselves to the authority of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but in all this, it, it, whether it's in the form of a pastor, a full-time pastor, who I believe to be, uh, again, should be an elder in accountability with other elders, or elders that are, that are taking their time voluntarily um, above and beyond their vocational demands, the call is high. Um, Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over the flock, those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5. And what are, what are elders responsible for? Um, I think you get a little bit of a, a picture in some of the words that are used, especially with Peter there. Um, elders are to both be shepherds, and that's where we derive our word pastor. Simply means a shepherd. And overseers. Uh, so you kind of get a twofold expectation of church leadership, um, and they dovetail together. In overseer, we could say we kind of see a person who is gifted to be able to step back and, and, and keep watch and see the big picture and direct the affairs of a group of people with wisdom and discernment. We might, we might see in this kind of the biblical nature of a steward. Right? Jesus had some parables that talked about stewards, someone that is entrusted with the care and prospering of someone else's property. Right? Because this church is not mine by any means. It's not the elders by any means. This, this, is what, this belongs to God. Right? So you, can, you get this, image of a, this picture of a steward that's entrusted with the care of the owner's property um, to care for it and advance it, to be in sync with his heart and his goals. But you also get this picture of a shepherd. And, and a shepherd is someone who lives with the sheep. Uh, someone who his major responsibility is, is to bring personal care to the sheep. Nurturing, um, feeding, um, protecting, guiding, leading to green pastures. Overseer and shepherd. Now obviously for elders this is to take on a spiritual dynamic. Um, it would include sound biblical teaching. It would include uh, giving good godly counsel, setting an example, protecting against false doctrine and divisiveness. It would include encouragement, correction, conflict resolution, uh, corporate guidance and administration, and vision and direction. Um, it would be 
it would incorporate creating a culture in which a deeply shared community life takes place, uh, where spiritual gifts are discovered and matured, where worship and prayer and generosity and service and love and grace and, and the mission of the gospel and gospel outreach are expected. And ultimately, it's their job to keep pointing you to the love of the Father <laughs> and keep pointing you to the Lordship of Jesus, to keep pointing you to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But in the end, it's not the church leadership's job to do all the ministry. It's not the church leadership's job to do all the ministry, but rather to nurture a, a, a setting in which the entire church is built up to do the ministry. Each member working out their giftedness under their care. As Paul says in, in um, Ephesians chapter 4, that they would be those who would prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. To prepare God's people for works of service. Now, in verse 12 here, Paul um, says that these leaders, and again, this may make us cringe a little bit, these leaders are over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord. Now, the Greek, the Greek thought here is, is a thought that combines leadership with, with care. Leadership with kind of a, a protecting and caring for it. There's almost a parental sense to it. Um, so when it's taken in this context um, and the context of the rest of Scripture, especially the example of Jesus, right? What did Jesus say leadership was? Uh, in John 13, he's like, this is leadership. And he puts on an apron and he gets down and he, he washes their feet. This is leadership, right? What, is, what does he ultimately say this is leadership? He dies on a cross, right? This is leadership. Me dying for you. Me going ahead of you and laying my life down for you. So that's, that's, you know, that's the context we have all through Scripture um, of what leadership is. So we see being over you in the Lord certainly not to be understood as being superior or being elite or being heavy-handed. It's to be a servant of those who are being led. Now, with that said, we also have to see that that doesn't negate the fact that Christian leadership still assumes a level of entrusted authority. Um, John Stott, we can go so far the other way where we say servants are leaders, so we don't respect the authority that they're given. Um, John Stott says, Jesus made it absolutely plain that the chief characteristic of leaders is humility, not authority, and gentleness, not power. Nevertheless, authentic service, servant leadership still carries an element of authority. Now, Paul points out that one of the aspects of this leadership will, be, um, will mean at times that they're called to admonish some under their care. Now, that, again, that word is like, Admonish that has a really harsh tone to our ears. 
But it points to a willingness to teach and to correct, um, to, to bring this correction and challenge in love. It's often poor, uh, paired in Paul's letters with teaching. He'll talk about admonishing and teaching, admonishing and instructing. And this admonishment is to be done, again, not, not with this air of superiority, but in love, in patience, in grace, in gentleness, in humility. Um, the 19th century Irish theologian, I'm sure you guys read this guy a lot, um, Fenton Hort wrote, it denotes the word of admonition, which is designed to correct while not provoking or embittering. To correct while not provoking or embittering. It, it's kind of the way that Paul talks to fathers about how they should deal with their children, right? That, that they should be able to not exasperate their children. They should be able to loving, lovingly correct without provoking or embittering. Um, Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25. It's really interesting because he's talking about people who oppose his leadership in this verse. He says, he must gently instruct in hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. He writes in Galatians 6.1 that if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. So again, a good mature leader isn't going to go tit for tat when someone is opposing them, but they should be able to keep their calm and restore them gently. So what then is a healthy response to church leadership, to these servant leaders that are entrusted as spiritual shepherds and overseers? The Apostle Paul tells us that it includes a couple of things, and I'll sum it up this way, that there should be loving respect and that we should live in peace with one another. Now, there, there are a few common pitfalls of this. And again, I'm just trying to be honest here, right? Trying to be kind of real talk, right? There's a few common pitfalls in this. One of, the, one of them is that, is that we all know we need to be led. We all at le one level want to be led. We'll even call for good leadership, but none of us want to be led. And that dichotomy goes on in our heart all the time. We, we know we need to be led. There's a part of us that wants to be led. We need good leaders. But when leadership enters into our life, we recoil from it or even rebel against it in our pride. And I do the same thing. We so easily get defensive. Um, and in this, I think we find it too easy to treat leaders dualistically. Um, where we disassociate the person from the position. We disassociate the person from the position. So leaders uh, often, especially in the church, have to live in kind of a dichotomy sometimes of some people who treat them lovingly as a friend, but then really harshly as a leader. I, you know, I've been, I've, been on, I've been on three different leadership teams at three different churches, two in New Jersey and one here, and, and, and there's been a variety of people that I've led with. But you know one thing that is in common with all of them? And I've led with, you know, yeah, just a real variety of personalities, ages. Here's one thing that's in common. They all, all have in common. They are people. They are people. And they're people with, with families. And they're people with feelings. And they're people with shortcomings. And they're people with limitations and, and needs for love and encouragement. Um, I, I think we, we, we need to really guard against 
um, losing sight of the person in the position. Um, also, I think that while it's obvious that poor leadership can lead to an unhealthy and unproductive church, we have to be careful that we don't use leadership as a scapegoat. And, I, and again, I, I'm talking to myself here. We, we all need to hear this. We have to be very careful that we don't use leadership as a scapegoat or maybe like use them as, as kind of a criticism pincushion. <laughs> you know, that we, everything that's wrong with the church, you know, we stick it on them. You know, it's all you, it's all you, it's all you. And, and, and that's not to say that, that, that leaders are above critique, that leaders shouldn't be held into account, but we, that, that is to say we have to guard against using them as scape, scapegoats, um, in which we project everything that we see wrong. The spiritual expectation of a healthy church community involves every member of the church. The spiritual expectation of a healthy church community involves every member of the church doing their part. So at times I think we have to stop blaming leadership and, and take a long, hard look in the mirror. What, what am I doing? Am I, making, am I making more of a job out of critiquing others than I am doing my part? That I am working in my giftedness? That I am taking, making the most of my opportunities to enhance the health and advancement of the church community? And, and all of this can really fall under the category of unrealistic expectations. Um, I think there has to be high standards for spiritual leaders, high standards of character, high standards of, more, of moral maturity, spiritual maturity, and temperament. But some expectations just come from our personal preference. Well, my, my old elders used to do this, and my old church used to do this, or, or, our, or our former tradition, or our former experience, or, or some unrealistic imagined standard that, you know, out there somewhere. And the most dangerous uh, of these unrealistic expectations is to expect your pastor or your church leader, listen to this, to be your connection to God. That's, that's, about, as, that's about as dangerous as of a place in expectations that, that you can get because when you expect your pastor or your church leader to be your connection to God. I heard uh, Deb sent me a great message by Francis Chan where the, the whole... The whole theme of the message was, listen, man, I'm not your Moses. I'm not your Moses. I'm not, you're living in the old covenant if you think I'm your Moses, where, the, where he goes as a mediator between you and God. We're living in the new covenant, right? So you, you cannot expect your... Pat, listen, it can't be pastor, elder, deacon, deaconess, Sunday school teacher, worship leader. They are never meant to, nor can they ever replace each member seeking the face of the Lord. We're not, we're not meant to do this faith journey on our own. But when we come together, we're meant to be a collection of New Testament, Holy Spirit-gifted believers in Jesus Christ that have free access to God through Christ's blood, who've been seeking His face in prayer and His word all week long, so that when we join together, we're mutually building one another up. And church leaders, the shepherds, the overseers, are just to encourage this process and nurture this process, but not meant to be the end all of it. That's each part of us seeking the Lord's face. 
working in our spiritual gifts, developing and maturing in who we are in Christ. And finally, how are we to encourage church leaders in their work? Paul says very simply that we are to respect them. And it's interesting, this word respect, or it might be translated honor in verse 13, most literally means to know, to know. And, and in this context, we see that it denotes an awareness, a, a recognition, an acknowledgement, an appreciation for leaders, for the difficulty of the work and the position. But, but it's also a very personal word, right? It, 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 it's something that assumes relationship. It's something that assumes engagement and maybe cooperation. And along with this, Paul says that we're to hold them in the highest regard in love. Anyone want to guess what love is there? Hmm? It's agape, right? It's that unconditional God love. We are to hold them in the highest regard in agape. How well are we loving our leaders? Or do we, again, disconnect them from that? I'm to love everyone else, but I'm to be critical to my leaders. No, no, Scripture says the opposite. They're your brothers. They're, they're your comrades. They're, they're, they're the ones that are looking to serve and shepherd and oversee the church. How well are we loving our leaders? Are we responding to their leadership even when there's a loving challenge? Even when there's an admonition? Holding them in the highest regard in love. And in the Greek, it's really interesting, this phrase, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but several of the, the scholars that I read said this, that there's this strong triple imperative in this. When it says, hold them in highest regard. It, it, one of the, Leon Morris says um, that it means that we should go beyond exceedingly abundantly. Like that's, that's the idea in the Greek. Beyond exceedingly abundantly. The, the message paraphrases, overwhelm them with appreciation and love. And the goal in the end is that we would live at peace with one another. And this is a two-way street, right? That the leaders would be growing and giving opportunity to grow in their leadership, in their love, in their grace, in their gentleness, in their understanding of discernment and guidance and what the Lord is calling us to, in their hard work of shepherding and oversight, and that the church community would hold their leaders up with love, showing respectful regard and cooperation with their efforts, to not allow internal conflict to sidetrack us. That's what Satan would love to not allow internal conflict to sidetrack us to what God is calling us to, to grow in Christ together, to minister the gospel to our neighbors, to see the kingdom advance in and through us in this community. A peace that goes far beyond the absence of conflict to a unity that moves together and grows in love. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for how practical your word is. I thank you that we can enter into um, words that were written over 2,000 years ago and see how much it applies today. Um, Lord, I pray for our leaders even here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel, for the several elders that are represented, for those who lead in many other ways, um, small groups, Sunday school, worship, um, in their homes, uh, I just pray, Lord God, that wherever we enter into as a shepherd in your name, 
um, that we do so working hard, that we do so taking it seriously what you've called us to, um, that we do so not with a sense of superiority, but with a sense of complete humbleness and gentleness. And Lord, as a body, may we respond to the leaders that you've raised, raised up in, in our uh, assembly on our behalf. Um, guide us together. May there be a mutual peace, a shalom, Lord God, a wholeness. May we move together with the cause of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom as we grow together in you. And may it be something that you look and say, ah, this is beautiful. This is good. That our lampstand would not be taken from us, but that it would burn brighter and brighter and brighter in our community. We pray that we enter in with obedience, with humility, into your instruction, even as we move forward as a church this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.